Hey, Rachel, I was thinking about death. Thanos' girlfriend? Or wait, or the one in the bikini? Or the Vertigo one, you know, with the Ankh? You know, Miles, you've got to be more specific about these things. No, like death, like the revolving door kind in X-Men. Oh, with a lowercase d. Yeah, like they're going to be killing off Wolverine in some big crossover event coming up. But at this point, it's a foregone conclusion that he'll be back. Oh, yeah. A-listers always come back. Colossus. Reanimated by Art of Breakworld. Shadowcat. Retrieved from space by Magneto, then killed, and then reanimated in the space of an issue by Ord's lady friend. Professor X. Usually turns out to be faking it. Magneto. Much like Keith Richards, I'm pretty sure Magneto can no longer be killed by conventional weaponry. Cyclops? Was just mostly dead. Corsair. Man, you know, I have no idea, but I bet Greg Rucka does. Hey, Greg, how's Corsair back from the dead? No, 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 no. We talked about this. I'm not going to explain anything that's going to be a plot point in the series. It's okay. We can ask Bobby to bleep out any spoilers in post. <sighs> All right. Well, um, after <laughs> what happens is <laughs> recovers the <laughs> and then they take it to one of those big <laughs> where they put it underneath a large <laughs> and they slide <laughs> and once they have the <laughs> parts, they put it in a series of balls, which people, of course, could <laughs> but nobody's really going to <laughs> Once they've in this fashion, they then proceed to throughout the using him as a against members of this in such a way that he is exact as revenge. What? I'm Rachel Edidin. I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to the seventh episode of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera. So, X-Men Days of Future Past is so good. It it actually is really, really good. I was kind of blown away. Can we talk about this for a minute? Because we led up to it last time, and I've been wanting to talk about this movie with you all week, because I watched it on Tuesday, and then there was this three-day gap where you hadn't seen it, and it was like being cut off from the hive mind, and it was horrible. I- I'm sorry. I'm just really spoiler-phobic. I don't, I, don't, I don't know how to be excited about X-Men without you. It's it's really it's really fucked up. It's like not having hands. Should we see a therapist about this? Is this okay? I think it's okay. X-Men Days of Future Past is a really good movie. Uh, we talked last time about what we thought you should see beforehand. We're going to amend that list. We said X-Men The Last Stand and X-Men First Class. But you don't actually need to watch X-Men The Last Stand, which is great because no one should ever have to watch X-Men The Last Stand. So if you're going to see X-Men Days of Future Past, then the one to see before it is X-Men First Class. That should really give you all you need to know. Now, Rachel, you've also been playing the Days of Future Past uh, mobile game that came out, right? Yeah, Glitchsoft was nice enough to send us a download code. I'm not very far in it because I'm really, really bad at platformers, but it's a lot of fun. It's based really directly on the comics. So if you're looking for an adaptation that's, you know, the, the originals and Kitty Pride's the main character and stuff like that. And has a lot of like comic book Easter eggs. It's really fun. Again, it's very playable so far. I think I'm about seven levels in. And aside for all of our listeners, we don't really advertise at all. We uh, Yes, we were given a code. We're never, ever going to promote anything we don't actively like, though. So we you have our word on that. We don't get paid for this. Our opinions are our own. We don't speak for Marvel, the Shi'ar Empire, the Jean Grey School, the Xavier Academy, or anyone else. Actually, I am a duly appointed representative of the Shi'ar Empire. I probably should have discussed that with God you. God damn it. I just I didn't know how to bring it up. Dude, seriously? We'll talk after the episode. What the hell, man? Anyway, this week we're joined in the studio by writer Greg Rucka, who's here to help us explain the Starjammers and get into the details of his Cyclops ongoing series, which premiered this month. Yeah, if the Starjammers are explicable, and I'm not sure they are. We're going to explic as hard as we can. <laughs> or die Ex- trying. Explic away. <laughs> so for both of those subjects, we should probably start with one point, which is Cyclops's dad Corsair. Corsair is in charge of the Starjammers. I really like Corsair. I might like Corsair a little too much. You might have a Corsair costume. I mean, there 
was a space party, and yeah, I could have gone Star Trek or actual space history. You might have shaved the beard that you've had since high school for your Corsair costume. I stand by that decision. It looked pretty amazing. We're going to post pictures in the as mentioned on. It's it's a beautiful costume. I'm going to be famous. Uh, <laughs> so Corsair's basic history. So Corsair is a dude named Christopher Summers. Now, if you've listened to previous episodes, we've mentioned him. He is the father of Scott Summers, Cyclops, Alex Summers, Havoc, and Gabriel Summers. The worst Summers. Vulcan, who's... Kind of a big mess, um, but was a big deal for the a long optional time. optional Summers. The, the, the third Summers, if one so chooses. So the known Summers is at the time, that's Christopher, his wife Catherine, and Scott and Alex. They were in a plane, because Christopher is a pilot, was a pilot. Air yeah. Force pilot. They were just, you know, flying around, doing their thing, and all of a sudden, terrible things happen. The ship is out of control. A uh, plane, it's, not, it's just a plane at this point. And uh, Christopher and Catherine, to save their sons, eject Scott and Alex with the one parachute. And that leads into Havoc and Cyclops' backstories, which are irrelevant for our purposes. But very tragic. What happens to Christopher and Catherine, they get beamed up onto the Shi'ar ship that has been firing on them. Now, the Shi'ar, I suppose we should talk a little bit about them. Can we make Greg explain them? Greg, would you like to explain the Shi'ar in four sentences or less? The Shi'ar are one of the main... Marvel Galaxy Empire forces. They look like birds, and they can't decide if they're going or coming. As far as the bird thing, that always confused me as a reader when I was a kid, because they, they kind of have feathers, but they also just kind of have weird, like um the hair of the Centauri in Babylon 5. That always yeah. reminded me of that. Like How would that look in the Lelandra has the best feathers. She does. I'm pretty sure that's why she is most often the leader of the Shi'ar. I think they do it on the basis of plumage, yes. <laughs> that's I, as logical as anything else. This is absolutely true, X-Men. They're also really into apostrophes, and we should qualify yeah, that. There they are, are gonna be everything. A, there every are going to be a lot of names in this episode that none of us are quite sure how to pronounce, so bear with us as we butcher those. Yeah, as, speaking as the writer on some of these, when I type the names, I just assume it's a guttural pause. Or a glottal stop on everything. So like, it's Lutlandra. She was actually the only one that never had a, a visible apostrophe, which always confused me. Yeah, but she should. <laughs> she traded hers for extra plumage. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. That's exactly it's beautiful plumage. So, yeah, we, we have a few uh, Shi'ar who are going to be significant over the course of X-Men. And they actually, most of them have the last name, which is uh, Naramani. We have Lalandra herself, who we've, who we've mentioned. Um, there's also her brother, the Mad Emperor Deken, and I kind of feel like you can't just say Deken, you have to say Mad Emperor Deken pretty much every time he yeah, comes out. sort of up. like you, can, you have to say Adam X the extreme. Exactly. Uh, and then we have Kalsai, who's their other sister, who's also known as Deathbird. And she was just called Deathbird for a really long time, but relatively recently it turned out that Deathbird is actually a rank in the Shi'ar military. I think we should just keep calling her Deathbird because there's not going to be another one in this episode and it's a lot easier to pronounce. Also, Kalsai sounds way too much like Khaleesi and that's an entirely different franchise. The Shi'ar, their stories tend to be going with that, that those mentioned siblings, largely about who's sitting on the throne at any given time. Um, usually it's some kind of a war between these siblings, not always, or between the Shi'ar and another alien race. They're also in possession of the, and this is going to be one of those other things that I'm not sure how to pronounce, Mkron crystal? Mkron crystal? I, I always said Mkron. Uh, the M- do you have your own pronunciation? I'm with Emcron. Okay, the, the Why M- complicate it? You get to say it in your head however you want. <laughs> the Emcron crystal, which is basically the, the nexus of reality, in, or at least of 616. Uh, we're not going to go into that, but again, the Shi'ar have that. That's how powerful they are as a, a space empire in the Marvel Universe. And yet they can't seem to get their government to work. They really can't. Um, you know, again, much like the, the Roman Empire, except space and birds. Mm. Slight difference there. So Lalandra, she first came into X-Men. She had sort of a psychic and romantic connection with Charles. Charles Xavier, she came seeking help. We're going to get to the specifics of that in an episode coming up in the not-too-distant future. But for now, the important thing to know 
is the Shi'ar are this sort of uh, bird Roman Empire analog who overlap with the X-Men a lot. And pretty much every time the X-Men go into space, the Shi'ar are in some way involved. And these are the people who capture the Summerses. Specifically, the Mad Emperor Deken. The yes. Mad Emperor Deken. For, for which you can read Caligula very easily. So Deken and the Shi'ar uh, kidnap the Summers patriarch and matriarch and enslave them. Basically, Deken takes, uh, sorry, Mad Emperor Deken takes Catherine, uh, Cyclops and Havoc's mom, as a concubine. Or as close as you can say to that under the Comics Code Authority. Christopher tries to rescue her, and Deken just kills Catherine right in front of him. And this is something we mentioned um, when we talked about X-Men Deadly Genesis a little bit ago. The son, uh, the, the, the not-yet-born son of Catherine Christopher, Gabriel was at that point ripped out of Catherine and yeah, put into a vat. Can we skip over this bit? Let's just skip over Oh, this God, bit. we sure can. We're just looking at Corsair, and he doesn't know any of that stuff anyway, so. That's true. Just as far as he knows, his wife is dead, he's a slave, he's put on a prison planet. And, and his kids terrible. are probably dead on Earth. So the prison planet is a place called Alice Bar, and here is where he meets these three space pirates. Chod, Raza, and Hepzibah. One of the few names that we actually do have a pronunciation for, or at least an intended pronunciation for, is, is the first one of those, um, because we, we checked with our expert source, Dr. Internet. Thanks, Doc. And uh, Dr. Internet told us that Dave Cockrum actually intended, originally intended that name to be pronounced like it was just transliterated Hebrew, so as Chaud. But since that's not a sound that most people whose first language is English tend to make very often, most people just say Chaud, and we're going to go ahead and do that so we don't get phlegm all over the microphones. So anyway, they all end up teaming up. Christopher, at this point, he's like, well, I'm in space. I'm hanging out with these space pirates. I need a space pirate name. Everyone needs a space pirate name. We need space pirate names. Uh, listeners, if you have any ideas, we're open to them. So he ends up calling himself Corsair after his old uh, Air Force call sign, which he chose from our research based on just his love of old adventure stories and science fiction and stuff. Now, a brief aside, Rachel, do you want to talk about uh, where the Starjammers originally came from? Like some of the X-Men who showed up in All New, the Starjammers weren't originally created to be part of the X-Universe. They were created by Dave Cockrum to be a standalone team. He eventually got impatient waiting for a slot in Marvel Spotlight or Marvel Comics Presents, and so he ended up giving them to Chris Claremont to put in the X-Men. Right. So the whole thing with Corsair being Scott's dad, that was actually created after the characters themselves were created. I'm going to briefly go over the, the other members of the Starjammers, because they're going to become extremely relevant, especially once we start talking with Greg about the new series. So first of all, we have uh, Hepzibah. She's a member of an alien race called the Mephistoids, and basically they're sort of skunk cat people. They used to be drawn more as skunks, now they're drawn more as cats. Along with Sonic the Hedgehog, she is responsible for conditioning a whole new generation of furries. Likely true. Originally, I, I mentioned that Corsair met up with the Starjammers on this prison planet. Hepzibah was actually about to become the main course at a banquet. She was going to be eaten alive. This prison planet is really weird and really terrible, and I do not recommend it. Speaking of unpronounceable names, uh, her name is literally a series of scents. Hepzibah is a nickname that Corsair gave her after a character in Walt Kelly's Pogo. Which is kind of awesome. Hepzibah and Corsair end up in a relationship of some ill-defined sort. Uh, after a while, she actually spent some time on Earth on X-Force, along with Wolverine and Warpath and, and some other characters. We're not going to go into that for now. So next is Cha'od or Cha'od. He is a Sorid, which are large reptilian guys with gills. He's affable. He's, I think, either the navigator or the pilot. Do they do the Starjammers have specific roles, or you know, do they I all kind of I couldn't cover find anything when I was looking to see if there was specific positions for them. I have a feeling the way I envisioned that ship running is that there's a captain, there's a chain of command, and everybody knows the job they can do, and they can do everybody else's job. Child is he's very smart. He gets to be science officer and chief boarding member. <laughs> because if you see him coming at you angrily, you get out of the way. He kind of reminds me of a beast in that regard. Yeah. Like, he's this really big dude, but he's also brilliant. We're digressing already, but I love the way he speaks. Mm -hmm. he, he's the most erudite 
of them. And I like that it, there is a very considered gravitas to, to the way he speaks. Yeah, and, and the Star Dreamers, that's one thing I always enjoyed about them, is you have these four core members. And, you know, Corsair is sort of the normal human one, but the other ones, like, you have Cha'od, who's sort of this erudite figure. You have Raza, who's like, uh, we'll get to him in a second, who's like this old school, like, Scottish, for some reason, pirate badass. That's because all pirates are secretly Scottish. And all dwarves, <laughs> You also. don't watch enough movies. Uh, apparently. <laughs> then we have Hepzibah, who's got this sort of strange, like, almost... She inverts syntax. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. It's, it, this is another digression, right? Yeah. Because they've got whatever's in the atmosphere that allows everybody to understand everybody else. You know, you're Babblefish or whatever. Exactly. And one of the first questions I had to my editor when I was working on the first script was, why does she speak so funny? Because they can all understand her. Mm-hmm. And we went back and forth and we decided what she's trying to do is when she's speaking like that, she's trying to speak English. That's, <laughs> okay. her, that's her trying to speak Chris's native language. That's that that totally works. I love that idea. They, it works right up until the moment where she's trying to speak to anybody else. And then you're like, okay, she's staying in English and she's letting the translator bugs work for them. I mean, you know, X-Men suspension of disbelief is required. Exactly. There are certain questions we do not ask. And I'm really bad about identifying those questions far enough in advance. I think letting it be awesome is an important skill to have as a reader. Like, Mm -hmm. is that awesome? Yes. So I'm not going to look more deeply into it than I need to. Well, and I think the Starjammers are a really good example of a place where that's key because there are a lot of ways that they don't quite fit or don't quite make sense. And what it comes down to is that they're space pirates who hang out with that's superheroes exactly. they, they, and they fly if on that's the basis not enough cool. I don't want to know you that's, that is that's it they fly on the basis of cool so the other main star gem remember is a guy named Raza Longknife uh, he's <laughs> what's in a name <laughs> I love it and actually I read this according to according to again our friend Dr. Internet um, at least someone claimed that Longknife is his English translation of what his actual alien name is actually maybe you know this because we couldn't find is is Raza Shiar or he is, is he some other alien race we know he's super cyborgy I would have to go back to my notes but this is one of those things where like I said I keep asking questions that I probably shouldn't ask I was asking them how the visor works Oh, like, man. what's the trigger mechanism on the visor? And I literally had an editor write back to me saying, Brian's been writing this thing for I don't know how long. He's never asked. Oh, well, I, man, I can answer that. No, <laughs> it depends on it what phase and what stage, right? Yeah. What visor is my Scott using? He's so using what's the trigger mechanism? Hmm, he's using the one that was, let's see, your. He, they came forward. Yeah, he's it's supposed he's to be got, the hand one. Mm-hmm. He's got two though because he uses both the mm-hmm. temple one and the hand one mm-hmm. in the in the first few issues of the Silver mm-hmm. Age. So this is he's he's been in the Silver Age since about seven. But that's also assuming he hasn't gotten a newer visor since since joining they, up and ending up at the Jim Gray it, School. Well, or which even, presumably he'd have access to. I mean, you'd think they'd be like, yeah, that thing you're using is is fifty years that's old. An antique, we have a better kid. one, <laughs> right? Well, and then then presume that and now you're on board the Star Jammer, and Sikorsky takes one look at you and says, that is stupid. Let's do contact lenses. Let's do, what is it, nictitating membrane. Grant Morrison did contact lenses briefly, and it made absolutely no sense. Yeah. uh, How do you remove them? Oh, that sounds really dangerous. Again, again, this is a thing in the Morrison run, and it just, it's like two panels, and he just never went back to it because it was was so untenable. Ill-conceived? Ill-conceived might be the word. But I like the the nictating membrane. Is that that how we pronounce it? I just like to say that word. Yeah, Yeah. it's a a good word. And you um, don't have to bleep it. (laughs) So listeners, um, I think in the last couple of minutes, you have just decided whether or not this podcast is for you. (laughs) (laughs) 
if you can't get really excited about iterations of Cyclops' visor, you need to find a new hobby. <laughs> if you can, you should totally hang out with us. Welcome to the high weeds. <laughs> so, yeah, Raza. So he's he's this cyborg old school pirate, which I just, that's such a good phrase. Later on in a storyline that maybe we'll cover, we'll cover later, he's actually possessed by this, I don't even know how you say it. Um, it's it's a symbiote, kind of like the one that Venom is. And you this know, is spelled ZZZXX, all caps. Sometimes like. it is. Sometimes it's spelled differently because Marvel. It's a symbiote like Venom, uh, like the Spider-Man character, and it sort of takes him over for a while. He ends, actually ends up getting that purged out of him by the Nova Corps, and it's like this really complicated thing. The important part Just is... Just run with it. We have an old-school cyborg space pirate who gets taken over by a parasitic alien. And gets over it. I love comics. He's great. And there's Sikorsky, who's a the sort of dragonfly robot doctor. Yeah, Greg, you mentioned him. Yeah, and he's named by Corsair. That's how he ends up with the name Sikorsky. I'd wondered. He's named after Igor Sikorsky, right? He's named after the helicopters. Corsair is like, ah, you're like a helicopter. I will name you after a type of Russian model helicopter because I am an Air Force pilot. See? <laughs> and Sikorsky's like, yeah, whatever, dude. Yeah, I'm a robot. Exactly. I don't and Sikorsky's like, go away. And Corsair <laughs> never, never breaks away from that. When he first meets the X-Men, that's part of how they figure out that there's that he's not just from space because he's like dropping regional slang. Hmm. Um, and then we also have a member called Waldo who's not in the Star Jammers anymore. He basically got destroyed, but he was kind of a robot that piloted and took care of the ship. Now, the last member uh, who shows up later, he's this dude named Corvus, and going into his backstory would take a very long time. It suffice to say that Corvus is... Uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's wrapped right? up with... Okay, it's wrapped up with Shi'ar space politics. It's wrapped up with the Phoenix Force. And uh, also an improbably large sword. Like, Final Fantasy VII clearly was not that old when this when this issue came out. It was part of the universal gestalt. Now, later on, there was a phase when uh, Corsair, as we mentioned, died. We'll, we'll talk about that a little bit. And, and during that era, um, Havoc led the Starjammers, and Polaris and Rachel Summers, who, again, is Scott and Jean's kid from an alternate timeline... X-Men. We're also on the team. Right. There's uh, Oh, there's also, there's a 2006 limited series by Kevin J. Anderson, who's best known for Star Wars and Doom novels, where the captain of the Star Jammers was a tree guy whose name I have forgotten, and I'm going to leave it at that, because the less said about that series, the better. Let's look at how the X-Men tie into all of this. Corsair is Cyclops and Havoc's dad, and he's going to first show up on Earth and in- Gabriel's. And, and, and Gabriel's. Gabriel's. Oh, God. I thought, I, thought, I thought you were the one who wanted us to forget Gabriel. The problem is we're not Oh, but Gabriel's, to. Gabriel's not one of the X-Men, so. He was. Or, yeah. You know, briefly. briefly. <laughs> <laughs> I will find you, a way to yeah, justify this. I know. You're this. trying. I can see you I'm going. Trying I'm going to so get hard. through this somehow. Not, not really. Thanks. <laughs> fake X-Men. Um, <laughs> okay. So anyway, regardless, Corsair makes his first appearance in the comic in X-Men 104, which is in the lead into the Phoenix Saga. He doesn't make it to Earth until 107, at which point he's still not revealed to Cyclops' father, although Jean's figured something out, but she doesn't tell us what. Later on, Jean does tell Corsair and Storm what's up, and Corsair doesn't know at this point, of course. But we learn a little bit later on, that's in uh, 109, I think, that Corsairs asked them not to tell anyone, and they've agreed. Now, of course, in Deadly Genesis, that'll be right gone to Xavier making the call not to tell um, Scott and Alex about Corsair. Now, my favorite part of this comes in X-Men 114. Which I, I, <laughs> I want to just like frame these panels on our wall. This is, oh, we really should. This is, this is one of those amazing scenes. So Cyclops keeps on thinking that he might know Corsair from somewhere, and he, he can't place it. And he and Storm end up in the Savage Land for a few days, which is, if you, you recall, the, the place in Antarctica where there are dinosaurs and it's always summer and it's and ridiculous things happen. I mean, you've, you've probably been there if you've vacationed around much. And one of the ridiculous things that happens is that he, he doesn't shave for a few days. And he, he finally shaves and he, he's halfway through shaving and he's just got a mustache left. And he catches sight of his reflection and he realizes that with a mustache, he looks like Corsair. And therefore, and he's he puts... spe- And specifically that he looks piratical, too. 
And and so he figures out that there must be something to his sense that he knows Corsair, but he still doesn't quite put two and two together until X-Men 154, when he discovers that Corsair has a locket with pictures of Scott and Alex and their mother in it. And Cyclops, being the bright bulb he is, immediately demands to know why he has that and why he has Scott's father's dog tags. <laughs> it's like, dude, Scott, you're the leader of the X-Men. You're, you're better than this. Come on. Come on. You got this. So they work that out, and their relationship tends to be, from then on, pretty tense and adversarial. They they work together, but they, uh, they don't really get along that well. There's one kind of notable to, exception to it, which is a, a really good kind of quiet issue much, much later, which is X-Men 391. Or Uncanny the, X-Men. Uh, yeah, Uncanny X-Men, X-Men 391, which is, is kind of the worst camping trip ever. There, there As I recall, you, you really enjoyed the uh, couple of almost awkward hugs in that I issue. I do, I do. Um, I was, in, in context, there was this thing in all new X-Men where Cyclops kept on, like, trying to hug X-23 and the two of them were like, then the two of them were both terrible at, at feelings and hugs and they kept on failing at it. And so, I remember that there was this issue which is just non-stop Cyclops and Corsair failing at hugging. As again, you know, someone who, who identifies a little too much with Cyclops and is also really, really bad at hugs. <laughs> um, oh, you're not that I, bad. I'm pretty bad. <laughs> pretty bad. Um, but it's it's a really nice issue. It's sort of, it's a quiet, very much just character development moment. Um, but it, it goes into a lot of why there's been that tension between those characters. The, the obvious is the, you know, lawful chaotic divide. But the other thing is that Cyclops are at least adult Cyclops. And that's, that's going to be a distinction that becomes important shortly. Never really seems to have gotten over the fact that Corsair never came back for him. And this is someone who literally followed his kid into the distant future. Right, Cyclops followed Cable to clarify. Yeah, so this feels like a major point of betrayal. And they talk about that pretty extensively in the issue. I think the ultimate explanation is that Corsair just feels like he's failed so utterly as a father that the best thing he can do is stay away. And so they they eventually resolve and, and hug super awkwardly. Super awkwardly. So let's talk a little bit about what's going on in the present day as far as young Cyclops. The original five X-Men got pulled into the present about maybe a year, year and change ago. These are Cyclops, Angel, Beast, Iceman, and Jean Grey. They're still Marvel Girl at that point. They can't go back. They're coexisting currently with their adult modern counterparts. The surviving um, ones, anyway. Yeah, ex- I, obviously, except for Jean. They end up going into space for Phoenix reasons. The details aren't really important here, except that they run into the Starjammers, and Cyclops discovers about... 90 issues before he normally would have that his dad's alive. So instead of having Cyclops, who's already, you know, the leader of this somewhat seasoned team of X-Men being like, you know, holy crap, my mustache makes me look like a pirate. That dude I met is my dad. Yeah, let's let's context this. This is a 16-year-old boy who's been having the worst three weeks of a really impressively bad life. You imagine what it'd be like if you were 16 and somebody showed you your future for 20 years. They said, this is what you are in 20 years. And I'm not talking about, and you became a zealot (laughs) Or a revolutionary, or maybe you murdered your mentor, or any of those things. Just you and me. If somebody had said at 16, this is you at 36, you would have snapped like a twig. That would be a major mindfuck, yeah. Yeah, so here's Scott, and there's Dad. And also, you flip it around. There's Corsair going, oh my God, that's still a young man who needs a father. And And Cyclops decides that he is, um, the the rest of the, the... Young X-Men go back to Earth, but Cyclops decides that he's going to stick around and he's going to travel with Corsair. He he actually goes back with them, which I think is significant, right? Does he? He does, yeah, because they land, they all get off, and then he says, I'm going with him! Because he could have bailed earlier. He couldn't, he didn't even need to get, no, he actually takes the time, I got to get off, I've got to tell you, I am not coming with you. Mm -hmm. I'm going back with my father. I have reasons to do this. 
says and, his goodbyes to Gene and yeah, everyone else. And, and, and I think what he says to Gene is very telling. You know, you know, maybe this way we can both have a chance to be happy. Right. Which is incredibly, it's such a 16-year-old thing to say to, mm-hmm. to your almost girlfriend. Who you know that you're destined to later marry before she dies. Well, you, but you're not destined. You know that you did, but it doesn't mean you're going to do it again. Speaking of mind fucks. Right. Yeah. And also who you've kind of picked up on is not into you. She's more into Hank. Exactly. Okay. So, I mean, talk about, you know, I think, I actually think Scott is being very, very smart in making that decision. I think mm-hmm. his decision to remove himself from that environment is very smart. And that's one of the things I like about this younger version of Cyclops. He's he hasn't had a chance to get nearly as messed up as uh, as our current adult Cyclops has. Like there's still maybe he'll turn out okay, you know? Yeah, this is um, something that that comes up in the first issue and that I think gets addressed fairly directly in the narration, um, or and if not that in the action, is that he's a character who's overwhelmingly responsibility driven and obligation driven, and this is sort of his first time starting to break away from that. Yeah, he's he, he's an ulcer waiting to happen. I think I do think that one of the things that you're seeing there in, in, in that departure moment is him going, yeah, I uh, I got to get my head straight because mm-hmm. my head ain't straight. <laughs> and, and it shoots optical blasts out exactly. of it. Exactly. And, so, and, and when it's on a swivel, it's very dangerous. <laughs> um, so this is the first ongoing that Cyclops has had, the one that you're that you're writing that just started. It, it was it was a surprise to me when I heard about. It. I'm like, oh, Cyclops is getting a, a series, cool. And then I looked at the details. You I'm know, like, he's become this very central character with more agency than just leading the X Men in, in the Marvel universe. So obviously, I, it was kind of a surprise when I'm like, oh wait, it's it's young Cyclops. It's not the Cyclops we've been following for for decades. It's this new slash old version that you know in X Men history comparatively just showed up so i guess was that um was that an editorial decision was that your decision that like, how was, did that... no that was that was how it was presented to me i mean when i got the call i got the call very specifically saying we want to do is this series that's going to be 16 year old cyclops in space with his dad and bendis says you'd be really really good at this because he's seen you with your son and your son's 14 and apparently you know about that and that was the hook you know I think if they had offered me adult Scott, I would have passed. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has nothing to do with whether or not I like the character. It's simply that I would have been like, there is that there is so much baggage. You guys would have to do another 50 of these podcasts, and I would have had to have heard all of them before I would have been willing to take on that job. <laughs> That's entirely reasonable. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm dead serious. Never mind going back and rereading everything. You know, it was presented to me very directly as 16-year-old Cyclops is going into space with Dad. Knock yourself out. And there were certain other edicts that I was given. There were things that I was warned about. <clears throat> Stay away from here. Try to go over here. Use this. Don't use that. Mm-hmm. Um, if you can avoid it. But it, it was it was almost free run. And, you know, I talked to, I talked to Brian. I talked to Bendis uh, when, when I got the offer. And I said, I'm presuming. You know, I view this as a support book. This is, this is, you're going to need Scott back at some point. You need to tell me the condition you're going to want him returned in. And he was like, yeah, eventually. <laughs> I was like, what does eventually mean? And he was like, whatever. 
<laughs> I was like, so, so we you're can, not helping. We can at least assume that he's going to survive the series or or be, you know, conveniently reanimated as necessary. Well, as as I believe you mentioned at the top of the podcast, death, where is thy sting? Um, <laughs> you know, I could kill him three or four times. That's not going to slow him down. Um, and, and we all know that. So. so to me, it does kind of make sense that it's young Cyclops because adult Cyclops is a character who is just inextricably associated with the X-Men and pulling him away from the dynamic pulls away him away from a lot of what defines him in the Marvel universe. This is an is a Cyclops who doesn't quite have that yet. So what what happens when you pull him out of that context, um, especially before it's really become intrinsic to his identity? Wonderful things. I mean, I really think it's wonderful things. You know, in a way, he's a legacy character, right? This Scott is a legacy character because, in a way, he's the legacy of Summer's Prime. I guess right. you know Cyclops Prime. And and I guess that's sort of the way I think of them. I think of I think of the fellow on Earth who's palling around with Magneto as Cyclops. I think of the kid in space with his dad. That's that's Scott. That's Scott. I like that distinction. Yeah, because he still has sort of his own identity as a, as a person before well, being this role. And you know what? They're two weeks into the school when he gets yanked forward. You know, two, that's two weeks of the mm-hmm. code name. Your first two weeks of school normally pretty bumpy. Right, you don't really know anybody there. You don't know really who exactly. you are. I mean, what he's, you're... he's had enough time to go, okay, this is better than everything I've had up until now, except for the part where we're persecuted by the world. <laughs> and the redhead is really, really cute. And <laughs> I think I'm really, really into her. But I would point out Scott is, you know, as far as we know, Scott's straight, and she's the only girl there. So if Bobby and Hank and, you know, Warren aren't all thinking the same thing about her, they're not adolescent boys. And yeah, you see some of that in the Silver Age. Like, everybody goes crazy, not over, you know, what are this person's powers? What's her personality? But hey, a girl. Yeah, look, a girl mutant. <laughs> Including Professor X, which is so great. Yeah, Speaking well. of things we don't oh, talk about. Yes, God. <laughs> not okay times. Um, so I, I have to say, I am selfishly pleased about the series for a number of reasons. But one of them is is that I my convention sketchbook um, theme is, is Cyclops has a good day. <laughs> 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 And I, I feel like there's going to be a lot more, like, the, between, like, even the first couple issues of this series, there will be more fodder than there has been in the entire previous hundreds of issues of X-Men. I want you to scan and post. I have. Starting, I have not seen those. That needs its own Tumblr. I'll, I'll, I'll send you, I'll send you, I'll send you, I'll send you a link. Cyclops has a good day. Have, That's its own I have Tumblr. eight or nine of them. My, my, oh, I want My to see favorite that. by far is, is Doc Shaner's, where he's he's excitedly finding a quarter, <laughs> which I think is is a really good indicator for just how low yeah. the bar is you, for gonna, a good day for Cyclops. You're gonna like issue two. Yes. Um, you're gonna you're gonna like issue two. There are a couple there are a couple uh, moments that are gonna make you want uh, Russell Dutterman uh, sketches, if not pages. So you mentioned earlier that part of why Brian recommended you for this series is that you're the parent of a 14-year-old. To what extent has that informed your your writing of, of Cyclops and Corsair and where you've where you've taken this story? Honestly, it, it actually has informed it. I actually, because there's narrative to this. I was talking to Brian and my son was there and he heard, this was before I'd agreed to do the book. Mm-hmm. And Brian was explaining to me why it is that I should do this book. And he was appealing to Elliot. And Elliot was like, yeah, you should do this book. It should totally be about me. And I was like, <laughs> okay, and when you're firing optic blasts from your eyes, it will be. But until then, all you are is source material, kid, because you live in a writer's house. And I actually I actually said to him, once I agreed to do it, I said, okay, so, and I, I described to him the situation. I said, this is you. At eight, you and your younger brother are given the only parachute in the airplane by your mother and shoved out. 
And then for the next eight years, it's pretty much hell on earth. Um, you're separated. There's an orphanage. You discover, you know, that you, you, you're hated because you're a mutant. You finally end up in this good place. Boom. You're pulled into the future. Your future absolutely stinks. And hey, dad's still alive. What would you want if dad said, hey, let's, let's, let's road trip? And he gave me a list. He really, really, really wants Scorsese to take Scott to a concert, <laughs> to which I'm like, yeah, maybe later. I want to do that. But he gave me a list of things, and then he gave me a list of questions that he would want answered, the things that he would really want to corner me on if it were us and say, I would and this want This isn't answers. just you. This is you who's relatively another 20 years yeah. in the future. Yeah. And this is him saying... You know, he gave me a list. These are the questions. This is what I this is what I would need to know because I'd be really angry. And I was like, yeah, and, and with good reason. The, the the first fundamental question is, why didn't you come back? When you could, why didn't you come back? And you answer that question very differently if you are saying that to a cyclops who's in his what late twenties mm-hmm. when he asks when he asks, and when you're sixteen and and it's a sixteen year old boy looking at you saying, where were you? My son is going through that, that phase of human development called uh, adolescence. And it sucks, you know? And he's a pretty happy kid. And I think he's a very well-adjusted kid. But I can still see his struggles. You know, it's the line from the comic, everyone sucks at being 16. That's exactly <laughs> it. And I really, you know, I, I, I firmly believe that. Even the people, you know, and this is the other thing we always forget, right? As we get older and our empathy is honed, you know, the, the great revelation of, of, our, our, of our 20s is the realization that everybody was going through the same thing mm-hmm. between 10 and 18. You know, that we all didn't know how to talk to whichever gender we were attracted to. We all had no self-confidence. We all didn't know what we were going to do with our lives. That, that whole laundry list, right? And we forget as we grow up. That realization is a huge moment. Right. Before then, it's the whole nobody understands me without realizing that everyone feels like That's nobody exact- understands yeah, them. It's like, well, you're not wrong. You're just not unique. Well, and, and it's, it's exactly that paradox. You're holding the truth and the untruth at the same time, which is nobody understands me except everybody understands me. <laughs> nobody has ever been here because it feels, I mean, it's a legitimate sensation. It's a legitimate emotion. So you're, you're talking about identification and you've written before about about you know reading X Men and you know connecting with Kitty Pride as a character. Um, yeah. Who are your favorite X Men? Who are the ones that who you read for when you read the books? I I chased Kitty. I mean Kitty was Kitty was my entry point, and Kitty was the character that I associated with the most. Um, not simply because of her Judaism, though that was a huge element. You know, in the same way that I know that for Black readers, being able to see an African American character you know, is a point of connection. Right. At the time, there just weren't that many options for people who weren't straight, white, Protestant, et cetera. Exactly. And I didn't really think about that with Kitty before you mentioned it, mentioned it because I, I think of comics as such such a, an overwhelmingly Jewish field, but there that doesn't really translate to the characters, does no. it? No, there aren't many characters who are, who are identified as Jews. Um, and that was a huge connection for me. I liked, <laughs> there was a period where I liked Peter. Colossus? And, yeah, and then he cheated on Kitty and I hated him. And I don't care if it was a secret wars and they all thought they were never coming back. He still shouldn't have done it. <laughs> uh, one of my favorite, favorite, favorite issues is the issue where Nightcrawler and Logan take Peter out to a bar in New York. And the subplot is that they get attacked by Juggernaut. But the A plot is basically Logan and Kurt saying, you ever, ever do that to her again. 
and they will not be able to find all the pieces. Boy. And then Nightcrawler and Captain Britain do the same thing with Wisdom and Excalibur. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you yeah, can I tell- remember the specific threat that Captain Britain would, would pull his head off and Nightcrawler would draw unflattering pictures on it before teleporting it to the middle of the Atlantic. <laughs> That's a really good creative threat. great threat, threat. Say, yeah. It does get the point across. So I think for me, like I said, it started with Kitty, and I loved Ileana. But I remember, see, I started reading when New Mutants was new. Like the early 80s. Yeah, yeah. like when, when the book debuted and I had my number one. And I remember looking at this art by this Sienkiewicz guy and going, who gave this to a three-year-old with black crayons? <laughs> you know, and then that beautiful moment when realizing what he was doing on that page. And it just, so, I mean, and I read those for a really long time, a really long time. So, you know, I had a rotating cast. Scott had never been in it. And I got to the point, I said this in another interview, where I actually sort of sat down and I was like, why Why am I not connecting with this guy? And I realized the reason I'm not connecting with this guy is that, for me, a lot of what I was reading was wish fulfillment. The people that you wanted, this is why everybody likes Logan, right? Because everybody wants to be a badass, right? Everybody wants to be able to walk through life you know, doing, I get my way. You know, nobody reads American Splendor going, I want to be that guy, <laughs> you know? And that was the thing with Scott. I read Scott and I was like, no, that's me. That's me. I'm the guy who takes everything too seriously. I'm the guy who gets picked on by the cool kid. Right? I'm the killjoy. I'm the guy who has to say, settle down, everybody, and get back in line. You know, everybody be quiet. The teacher's trying to speak. That was me. I think the, the more I sort of came to realize that, and the more I actually kind of began to adore Scott. Because I think that there's something inherently noble in Scott that is missing in a lot of the other X-Men. Exactly. Yeah, that's, that's one of the main reasons I love him so much as well. Yeah. And I think that you, you see it in Kurt, and I ignore a lot of the way that they fucked up Kurt, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. But you certainly see it in core Kurt as well, that there's yeah. a nobility in, in their existence. Um, there isn't a lot of pretense. Aurora wears not so much nobility, but regality. That's always the word yeah. for it. Yeah, right? totally. But there is something, like I say, you know, to me, Scott is, he's a leading man, but he's a leading man from the 40s. He's Gregory Peck. <laughs> he's Gary Cooper. He's never going to be bogey. He's never the one who made people slide off their chairs. <laughs> he was the one who, who, who you went going like, <clears throat> you know, and, and that's it. That's not to say he's not sexy. And that's one of the fun things about him at 16 is because at 16, he's at that crux point, right? I know what I want to be, and then I see what I became, and that wasn't it. So how do I make this work? I mean, is this bullshit? You know, is this, is this wrong? I'm 16. I have to stop with the fantasies. Never mind that life has pretty much beaten them out of me, right? Never mind the fact that I'm not going to be a pirate or an astronaut. What I'm going to be is I'm going to be an X-Man apparently. And I don't know what that means. I know what Xavier wanted it to mean two weeks ago for me <laughs> or six weeks ago for me. But now that's totally different too. And I do know enough about where Brian's going that there's a lot of stuff coming that sort of changes. You know, Scott's out in space right now. He's, he doesn't know. He's not getting letters. But uh, when he gets back, he's going to be in for a couple shocks. Uh, so you mentioned unpleasant revelations uh, sort of being in store for for Scott. Uh, does he know about the whole Vulcan thing, about the whole Shi'ar mess and Vulcan killing so many people? No, because if he knew that, he would know that his dad's supposed to be dead. And this goes to the cold open question. Part of the reason that I haven't bothered to explain it is that Scott doesn't know to ask. 
Nobody's told him. Oh, by the way, your dad, who you thought was dead and wasn't, got dead and was. He just there's there's no frame for it. He doesn't know about Gabriel. He doesn't know any of that. It is story necessary in Cyclops number three. Your questions are answered in Cyclops number three. So we'll hold out till July. Exactly. All right. You can make it. You really can make it. And then you'll be like, wow, that is such a lame reason for him to come back. And you can drop the book then. <laughs> uh, so I wish we could keep we could keep going with this for another couple hours. Um, <laughs> we, should, we should just have you back and do this later this on is, in the series again. This is great. This um, has been terrific. I really enjoyed this. Unfortunately, <laughs> we have you know, a limited window. So we're going to go to listener questions. All right. So this is from Quintessential Defenestration on Tumblr. Which First of all, awesome handle. <laughs> that is an amazing name. Wow. Speaking of things I just want to say over and over. Right? So Quintessential Defenestration says, there seem to be four X genres, save the world stories, oppression stories, time travel stories, and space stories. The first three make sense to me as flowing naturally from their premise. Even time travel makes sense because the X-Men have a very specific goal and these stories show what happens when they don't succeed. But why wacky space adventures? To this day, space stories seem to be really popular, even though it seems 100% random for these characters. You know, I have an answer for this. It's not a continuity answer. It's that space adventures are awesome. That's the answer. The answer is look at the look at the era when the Corsair and the Star Jammers were introduced. And that's your answer. You're talking about a post-Star Wars world. And comics are trying to grab what's cool. And what was cool at that time? Let's go back into space. We hadn't been doing that in a while. That inextricably has tied the X-Men to space ever since. Mm-hmm. But why do it? We did it because it was cool. Yep. You know? why go, why, that's sort of the why go into space answer in general. Yeah, but in, I, in fiction, I mean, given the unlimited budget of writing your own world, why would you not have space adventures? And I also like seeing them in X-Men characters. I, well, okay, so I would hesitate to describe them as down to earth, but <laughs> at all. But bear with me. But Marvel's characters, I think Mar- the strength of Marvel's characters has always been that you could like you could sort of see them as as real people. And yeah, I think they're grounded in real places. It's, it's it's New York and Chicago, not Metropolis and Gotham. Right. And so I think there's the, there's a certain thrill to being like, oh, you know, I can kind of identify with these people, or I can think of them as people that I know. Like, what the hell would we do if we were all of a sudden in this crazy space war? How would we react? Well, and it takes characters who are, who are grounded in a, a a version of the real world, really far out of their element. Our next question is from Also Mike on Twitter, and Also Mike asks, if the Starjammers got a new ship that wasn't called the Starjammer, would they still be Starjammers? Yes. Next. (laughs) So the next one is from Pixel Kaiser on Twitter. Uh, Oh, this is a good one. I'm curious to hear your perspective. Mm. Do you suppose the character of Vulcan can be salvaged? And should he be? I, I don't think so. I think that Vulcan is a, a gaping, gaping wound in the continuity <laughs> of the X-Men. That's what I think. Look, there are some people who are exceptionally gifted at uh, knitting the tapestry of continuity back together and making something beautiful out of it. I'm really, really good at doing quick patches, and they're not often pretty. So if you can do it, I'm not the guy to do it. So you mentioned specifically working working with Russell to update Corsair's look because he is he is the seventiest space pirate yes, of all is, the space pirates. Can you I talk love. a little bit about that process? Mostly, it was it, what was it? Because the book had actually three editors on it. Issue one, if you if you notice, there are three space editors. Yes, there's space editor Nick Lowe, there's uh, space editor Tom Brennan, and then there's space editor Janine Schaefer. Um, and I believe it was Nick who said, you've got to change that costume and sort of dropped it in front of Russell. And Russell, you know, dove in. I was getting his design sketches and so on. And, you know, I like the sash, man. I like the sash. <laughs> There's a piece of me that goes, it, you know, people go, oh, it looks so 70s. And I'm like, 
He's in space. That's contemporary fashion on some planet. <laughs> Somewhere he walks in and everybody's like, hot damn, where did you get those jodhpurs? You know? I mean, that it's it's space. That costume is. It's gotta have boots. It's gotta have a sword. I believe it should have a sash. And I believe it needs a deep, deep neckline. All right. <laughs> I think I think Corsair has great packs, and I don't think he's afraid to share it. Or to put it another way, he should be goddamn beefcake. Yes, and I love that. Yeah, early on, the first image we see of Corsair is him on that medical bed, and it's yeah. like, damn, dude, you work out like <laughs> a lot. Yeah, it's funny. Um, issue issue three, Corsair shirtless for the entire issue, <laughs> and, and the note I got from the, the editorial note was more issues like this, please. <laughs> <laughs> to which I was like, well, you know, in, issue, in the next issue, Scott's going to lose his shirt, so they're both going to be wandering around shirtless. Yeah. <laughs> this is for so many glorious audiences. <laughs> so, okay, this actually segues really nicely into a question that, that I had. So in the first issue, like at one point, Corsair and Hepzibah and Scott are about to uh, to go and, and board this ship. Yes. And Shaod's like, for glory. <laughs> and Corsair says, for girls. And Hepzibah says, and boys. And boys. So this this, this makes me ask, uh, want to ask the question. So we have these 70s characters, right? Uh, we, have them, we have them speaking like this. You know, they've been out here for a while trying a bunch of new stuff. They're totally swingers, right? I mean, like, <laughs> We realized in context of this that we've been assuming this literally like since we started, you know, since the first Starjammers comics we'd read. And this just like, oh, yeah, obviously. So, yeah, is the Starjammer basically like an un- ongoing key party in space? And I'd like to remind you that whatever you answer is official canon forever. <laughs> I, I would offer you this by way of answer. Uh, space is very, very big and it's very, very cold. And there are vast, 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 incomprehensible distances separating individuals in, in that void. And there's a lot of time spent in space flight. And uh, there are only so many times you can watch the same movies. <laughs> uh, I will also add that I feel that if anybody, if there's anybody that I believe can actually practice polyamory successfully in the Marvel Universe that I'm aware of, it's Chris and Hepzibah. That said, I don't think either of them is interested in it. I think their commitment to each other is absolute and total. You look into what we know about Hepzibah's backstory and you look at the tragedy. You know, we, we talk about Corsair jokingly. He, he sees Catherine die. And if I remember correctly, he actually sees Gabriel ripped from her. He does, yeah. 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 So there's a reason he's laughing and he's grinning because that shit doesn't get put down ever. Mm-hmm. It doesn't go away. Never mind being put into a slave labor. Never mind everything else. Never mind losing your kids, right? Never mind your two boys that you don't know if they died or not. And Hepzibah's, they were going to literally dine on her. So you look at the that cauldron that they found each other in, and I, I believe that, like I said, I think neither of them would have a problem with the other one going, hey, he slash she looks hot. What do you think? But I also think they're like, you're the only one for me. Man, they are one of my favorite couples in the Marvel Universe, actually. See, I'm also, I'm also a hopeless romantic. And in light of... Somebody on Twitter read one of my interviews and said, you've lost this Scott Gene shipper. Because I made some comment about you know the fact that he's in space. He's going to meet other people. He's a 16-year-old boy. Things happen. I know there's a audience that's absolutely invested in the two of them. And I don't begrudge that. They may be the most eternal love. They may be destined to be together. I think Chris and Hepzibah are together. I think they're epic. I think they would literally they would literally cross the galaxy for one another. 
Uh, well, I think we are about out of time there, unfortunately, but thank you again to Greg Rucker for joining us this week. So be sure to check out the Cyclops ongoing series that Greg's writing, which is seriously awesome. Uh, the second issue comes out on June 4th. And you should also check out his creator-owned series, uh, Lazarus from Image Comics, Veil vale from Dark Horse Comics, um, Lady Saber and the Pirates of the Ineffable Ether, which hey. you can find online, and coming this fall from Oni, the next volume of Stumptown. Awesome. I am very impressed that you dodged the tongue twister of the Lady Saber title. That was really good. You're a professional. I've, I've played adventure. <laughs> um, so Rachel and Miles explain the X-Men is, as always, recorded at the Roseway in Portland, Oregon, and produced by Bobby Roberts, who is co-host of the awesome Welcome to That Whole Thing, which you can check out at welcometothatwholething.com. And if you're enjoying our show, please take a minute to rate and review us on iTunes or Stitcher, uh, or both. And check out our shop at rachelandmiles.redbubble.com for t-shirts and stickers. Next week, we'll be back looking at the first issues from one of, really, the definitive X-Writer. Welcome to the Claremont era, listeners. Hope you survive the experience. Dun, dun, dun. And Greg, thank you again so much for being on the show. It was great to have you. It has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you, Miles. Really had a good time. And we will see you guys next week. Next week.